0: All right, welcome back. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. Uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29 today. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn there. If you're new to the Bible, or if you're new to church, uh, this is the part of our weekly gathering where we consider a primary text of Scripture and... We teach on it and try to give some practical application as to how it relates to our life today. And uh, and so our, our focal passage is Genesis 9, 18-29. Uh, there should be a paper Bible in the seat um, underneath in front of you. If you don't have a paper Bible, you're welcome to keep that and take it home. Uh, some of you have an app. You're welcome to get that. I think we also put it up on the screen uh, just to make that available to you. And, and I'm going to ask Dave Bender if he would come forward. He's going to read our text today, and, and say a prayer for us.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm going to read a, two verses before that. I'd read this second Timothy. I didn't tell I didn't tell him, so might be my last time I do this. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. This this portion of scripture I'm going to read later. It's the second portion, Is a very odd portion of scripture. So, uh, but we have to remember, as uh, Timothy says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteous, <clears throat> excuse me in righteousness, so that the man of God, the people of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good works. And in saying that, if you have your Bibles, Genesis, chapter 9, verse 18, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark was Sham, Ham, and Jethron. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah was a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of the wine, he became drunk and laid uncovered inside the tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But the other two took a garment and laid it across his shoulders. Then they walked in backwards And covered the father's nakedness. Their faces were turned and the other was turned the other way so that they were not able to see their father's nakedness. But when Noah awoke from his, his wine and found out what the youngest son had done, he said to him, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. Will be, will he be his brothers? He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Sham. May Canaan be the slave of Sham. May God extend the territory of Jethron. May Jethron live in the tents of Sham. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he passed away. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God, and we know that everything you do is good. Lord, this is good what we're doing right now. Lord, I thank you for each one in this room. I thank you for Gibson, and I pray a special blessing over him right now as he opens up God's word and tries to, the best he can, through the work of the Holy Spirit, share things to help us to to, uh, be a better Christian for you. Lord, I pray a word of encouragement on him and just thank you for all that you're going to do. And we ask this all in Jesus name. Amen.
0: Thanks Dave. Appreciate it. I appreciate you starting with, uh, with that verse in Timothy. Uh, we, we understand that all scripture is God breathed and, uh, and yet in God's providential and somewhat humorous timing on Move Up Sunday when we've encouraged kids to take notes and draw pictures, Um, (laughs) we get a passage like this, right? It's a strange text, uh, maybe one of the strangest, maybe in the top five strange texts in the book of Genesis, and yet we're committed to Walking and working through the Bible, a book at a time, chapter at a time, verse at a time, and, and we don't skip over the hard text, as you remember from the uh, the Genesis six sermon a few weeks ago about the sons of God and uh, and that uh, that passage as well. And maybe if I preached topically, I would probably never come to Genesis chapter nine and and teach on Noah's uh, drunkenness and nakedness, but uh, but here we are. Why is this event recorded for us here in the Bible? I mean, after all that Noah had accomplished during the days of the flood, before and after, why are we given this one incident to summarize the last 350 years of his life? I mean, surely he did something else that was worth noting in the final days of his life. But that helps us to remember the context that this word is written in. You'll remember Moses is writing this to the children of Israel who had just been delivered from Egypt. And they are making their way into the land of Canaan so that they may inhabit the land of Canaan. And that the land of Canaan and the Canaanites would be judged by God through the Israelites. One commentator said the inclusion of this sordid incident in the life of Noah is interesting. Out of all that Noah did after the flood, why is this episode the only one recorded? And he points out that the answer lies in the events surrounding the writing of Genesis. Moses was leading the Israelites toward the land of Canaan to take possession of it. And so the story of how Canaan came to be cursed was one justification of the conquest God had pronounced doom upon these people long ago, and Moses was leading the Israelites to fulfill that prophecy. So we understand that Moses is writing to the children of Israel, and it pertains to the curse of Canaan and this particular incident. You'll remember that when God made his covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abraham, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs.'" And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And then God tells Abraham this particular detail. He says, for the sins of the Amorites is not yet complete or not yet full. He's talking about the Canaanites. So they had this long period of grace where God was patient with them. And so that helps us understand in the conquest, right, why God would say to them, don't spare anyone, but fully destroy them because they had walked in this perverse way. Still getting back to Noah, you might say, well, this isn't a very fair way to send Noah out after all that he's done. And uh, we've really gotten to know Noah very well over the last four or five weeks. Um, So let me just start out with a really practical piece of information about the Bible. God is not concerned with protecting the image of sinful human beings. As much as He is concerned with us accepting the reality of our sinfulness before Him. Uh, There are no righteous people, Romans 3 tells us. It says, No, not one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Scripture, the pages of Scripture, and the people of Scripture all demonstrate that we are sinners who have missed the mark. You will never see a human being who is righteous in and of themselves and guiltless regarding their sin against God. And that's important to know because uh, oftentimes people will say to me, if I say, why should God let you into heaven? They'll say, because I'm a good person. Meaning that we fall into this tendency of, thinking more highly of ourselves than scripture presents scripture doesn't devalue us god values people but all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and all of us need salvation and all of us need the forgiveness of sins amen Uh, there's not one of us in this room that has it all together i know sometimes we we may appear that way uh, but let me assure you it is in appearance only um So the Bible makes a clear warning for us that we should not make heroes out of humans. We have uh, what's been called a celebrity culture in Christianity in America, which generally means that we tend to elevate men and women uh, to a position of celebrity status. You probably have five or six favorite preachers or teachers or musicians that you listen to or read or or sing with and are influenced by regularly. And listen, that's not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. Uh, We can all be blessed and benefit from the ministry of others. There's nothing wrong with benefiting from the ministry and the teaching of good and godly people. But there is a real danger in elevating them above the status of fallen humanity. You need to understand that all of our heroes of the faith are sinfully flawed. And there's a tendency within our own heart to to latch on to a human figure and to elevate them in such a way that um, is not good for their soul. So the encouragement is, even with Noah, to hold the heroes of the faith within a proper biblical perspective. Hold them with a balanced biblical view. They are capable of great sin and failure and are susceptible. I don't need to tell you that that even King David, uh, who was a man after God's own heart, uh, was also a man of great sin and temptation and weakness. So temper your enthusiasm anytime there is a man or woman that has been significantly used of God in your life. Temper your enthusiasm for them and, and for their own soul. Don't elevate them to a level of status that's not good for them. God doesn't hide the faults of our spiritual heroes. And Noah is an example of that. And and by the way, this is a real strength of the Bible's redemptive message. You won't find a human, no matter how much they are used of God, no matter how godly they are perceived to be, who doesn't qualify as a sinner in need of salvation. If the Bible were a collection of myths and legends and untrue or exaggerated stories, it would surely Uh, cover over some of their faults wouldn't it we would expect legendary books to have legendary people but but the bible doesn't hide the faults of some of the godliest men and women that it presents and so understand that we should not make heroes out of people in the bible there are no perfect sinless humans Uh, the bible makes no attempt to clean up their stories Uh, as a matter of fact the bible goes out of its way to reveal the ugliness of all people Except for one. There is nothing to hide in the life of Jesus. There is nothing that they need to go back and clean up or rewrite or there was no myth. Scriptures are very clear. Mark was just written a a decade or two. James was written a decade or two. The Gospels within two or three decades of Jesus' life. And there would have been plenty of people who, upon reading these published accounts of Jesus' life, could have said, that's not true. He didn't do that. And, And yet there were eyewitnesses everywhere who could attest to the fact that Jesus lived and breathed and did all the things that he did. Everyone short of Jesus falls woefully short of the glory of God. So what became of Noah? Uh, What did Ham do wrong? And what did Shem and Japheth do right? Uh, Why did Canaan, Ham's youngest son, why did he get the curse from Noah? And what's going to happen to Noah's family after he dies? That's uh, what we're going to get to today. And so let's get back into our text this morning. I've based our outline off these three questions, and so you'll see them if you're taking notes. And let's start here. What became of Noah? Well, we read that in Genesis 9, verses 20 through 21, that Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. In verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. We also have the uh, the end of Noah in verses 28 and 29, saying, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, we've gotten to know Noah uh, very well over the last four weeks. He walked with God. He was blameless in his generation. He was a diligent, obedient, hardworking man, diligent enough to to daily get up and, and work on the construction of the ark. And it took him 120 years to do that. Uh, a man of remarkable focus and talent. Uh, the New Testament in Second 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a, a herald or a preacher of righteousness. Um, we can see that the grace of God was evident in his life and that Noah found favor with God. Um, he was righteous as a result of his faith in God, Hebrew Hebrews tells us. He listened to God. He obeyed God. As soon as he got off the ark, he worshiped God and sacrificed to God, and he honored God with his life. He did everything right and was a true example to his wife and his uh, sons and his son's wives and to, surely, his grandchildren. We read that he took up farming. Uh, That may mean that he had a different profession uh, for the first 600 years of his life. Um, we know that in Genesis 5, his father Lamech referred to the curse of God on the soil, so that might have meant that Lamech was a farmer. But either way, the note here says that uh, that Noah took up farming. And we don't know for sure, but we can imagine that Noah and his wife settled on a piece of property and they began growing and harvesting food. He could have been a hunter um, because God had just opened up hunting as a way of life in, in last week's passage that we talked about. But Noah decided uh, that farming was for him. We learned specifically that he planted a vineyard. I took a bit of time this week and uh, looked into what it takes to plant a vineyard um, and what that process looks like. Uh, Today it takes three years before a crop is useful for winemaking. The process of winemaking is a multi-billion dollar market today. Uh, vineyards are full-scale complete productions today the vines are carefully pruned the grape clusters are hand harvested and cut back every year there's a whole process of squeezing and juicing and collecting and bottling and fermenting the juice it takes months if not years to produce a good bottle of wine We have no idea, necessarily, what specifically the conditions of the earth were like when Noah stepped off the boat, but assuming that it takes three years to produce a crop, we can assume that Noah invested a lot of time and a lot of effort into this process of winemaking. And what we can see plainly from the text here is that he planted a vineyard, produced wine, and in the process of that, he became thoroughly intoxicated. I don't want to assume, but maybe we can speculate that in the process of perfecting his recipe that maybe he became addicted to wine. Maybe this was just a one-time event that we read about here today. But whatever the case may be, or whatever the details are that led to the event that we read about, Noah lost control and became thoroughly intoxicated. So intoxicated that he passed out naked in his tent. Now I'll just pause here because there's a good warning for us to remember. Alcohol does not produce godliness or reflect self-control in our lives. The follower of Christ should be filled with the Spirit and not drunk with wine, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. And so while it's true that the Bible does not condemn drinking, you remember Jesus' first miracle in Cana of Galilee. He produced four large garbage can vat jars full of wine and distributed them to an already drinking crowd celebrating at this wedding feast, so much so that the master of ceremonies came out and said, this is good stuff. Normally people wait for everybody to get... Uh, drunk, and then they start to hand out the cheap wine, but you've saved the best until last. So while it's true that the Bible doesn't necessarily condemn drinking, it is clear that drunkenness is a sin. Do you know that alcohol sales rose up to 40% in the last three years in the wake of COVID? People have turned to alcohol and people turned to other substances, uh, in times of difficulty and stress, and so the encouragement for us in this situation is that we should be a people of self-control, uh, people who are not addicted to wine but are filled with the spirit. and if you are caught in alcoholic or substance abuse or addiction, we want to help. and we want to be able to offer assistance and to help you work through those issues. Certainly Noah experienced a tremendous amount of trauma and stress. He had seen a lot, hadn't he? Uh, everything had been taken from him. And so it's at least somewhat understandable of us that he he would use wine in a way that caused him to lose control. But the second thing that we see here in this passage is that Ham, his son, his youngest son, does something wrong And that Shem, his middle son, and his oldest son, Japheth, they do something right. So let's look at the next section. Verses 22 through 24. What did Ham do wrong? And what does Shem and Japheth, what do they do right? Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Scripture presents to us a fairly straightforward and clear picture of what took place here. There's no indication that there was something more happening here. Others might speculate that there was something more here. But the text is fairly straightforward and, and there's nothing really fruitful in speculation here. It just simply says that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Now listen, this is the strangest thing maybe the strangest sermon i'll preach this genesis series has uh, lent itself to that but i don't think i'll ever talk about nudity more in a sermon than i will here but the text addresses it and we don't skip hard passages so let's all just get embarrassed and awkward here for a second because the text talks about nudity so what does the bible say about nakedness What, what are we supposed to learn about noah's nakedness here well, the idea of being naked in Scripture has a couple of nuances. But it's primarily connected to the idea of shame and guilt and sexuality. There is in Leviticus uh, plenty of rules about uncovering a person's nakedness for sexual purposes and its prohibition. Um, Isaiah, you know, awkwardly enough, was commanded by God to walk around completely naked for three whole years Um, preaching and prophesying as a message, but his message was to indicate Israel's exposed and pitiful state before God. In the New Testament, Jesus commands us to do good to strangers. He says if you encounter a stranger who's hungry, you should feed him. And if he's uh, thirsty, you should give him something to drink. And if he has a provision, you should provide for him. And if he's naked, you should clothe him. And Jesus says that when you see a stranger who is naked and you clothe them, and when you do something like that, uh, in so doing, you minister to me. The author of Hebrews uses the idea of nakedness uh, to demonstrate that we're fully exposed to the God to whom we have to one day give an account. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Well, what does that mean? It means that before God, there is a sense of exposure, uh, that we can't hide anything, that we are, before God, uh, complete in our flaws and shortcomings, and in every way exposed to Him. John, in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, warns us that we shouldn't be blinded about our real situation. He, he condemns them, saying in Romans, uh, Revelation 3.17, you might say, I am rich and I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's telling them, rebuking them, that you think you're independent and self-sufficient and good by nature, not acknowledging your real condition before God. But to really get to the heart of the issue of nudity in the Bible, we should immediately be reminded of Genesis 3 in the curse from sin, that as soon as Adam and Eve uh, ate of the tree, we remember in Genesis 2.25 that Adam and his wife, the Scripture makes it very clear to us, they were both naked and they felt no shame at all before the fall. But in Genesis 3.7, after they had eaten of the fruit of which God forbid them to eat, it says the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. When God walks through the garden in Genesis 3.10 and he calls out to Adam, he, uh, Adam replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And in the very next verse, God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so when we're talking about nudity in Scripture, it really gets to the heart of things, meaning that there is a real sense of guilt and shame. There's a sense of guilt and shame. Uh, Things that we would want to keep hidden, God exposes I think there's a reason why the world over people have nightmares about standing in front of a crowd and they wake up and they they don't have clothes on, right? That's a real fear before a lot of people. There's an exposure level that just is naturally built into us, a built-in decency that all people around the world possess, which leads us to a desire to cover ourselves, and Ham violated this. He looked at his father's nakedness. And not only did he look upon his father's nakedness, but he went out and he told his brothers about his father's nakedness. There's a, a hint here that, that Ham um, almost reveled in bringing dishonor upon his father. To the point that instead of dealing with his dad individually and privately, as Shem and and Japheth did, Ham found some kind of perverse joy in exposing and embarrassing and humiliating Noah. And I think there's a direct point of application for us here today. And I don't want you to miss this. We should not rejoice in the fall of any person. There should be nothing um, in us that when we see a brother or sister in Christ stumbling or struggling that in some way find satisfaction good. Good for them. I'm glad they finally got what they deserve. You can be sure that if you ever find yourself taking pleasure in a once godly man or woman who is somehow fallen into sin, you can be sure that that perversity in your heart is also sin. We should grieve whenever brothers or sisters in Christ fall into sin. And we should work diligently for their re- uh, restoration in a biblically prescribed way. Just turn with me quickly over to Galatians chapter 6. It's all the way over in the New Testament. Um, if you make it right... From where we are in Genesis, uh, you'll, you'll get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the Acts of the Apostles, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then you get into these four little letters. Uh, I used to remember them by saying Gibson eats potato chips, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, in the letter of Paul to the Galatians, uh, turn over to chapter 6. And just look at this passage with me. Galatians 6, 1-3. See, Ham had an obligation and a, a right to, to cover over his father's shame. And in Gen- uh, Galatians 6, we see Paul's command to the New Testament Christians, saying, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul's instructing the Galatians that, that if we observe somebody falling away, rather than exposing them in a way that makes it public and uh, adds guilt and adds shame to their downfall, that we should go to them personally with the heart of gentleness to restore them. He goes on to tell us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There is a a law in Christ Jesus that we are to bear each other's burdens and one of them being the restoration of a brother or sister in Christ who falls. And then in verse 3, Paul says, For if someone thinks that he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So there's a real understanding for brothers and sisters in Christ to know that um, listen what any if King David is capable of such great sin and, and he's a man after God's own heart, then surely I'm not I shouldn't think too highly of myself to think that I can't in some way stumble and fall. There should be a sense of humility when we see a brother or sister in Christ fall, not a sense of joy that people fall. And so if you find yourself rejoicing in the fall of any Christian anywhere, it's an indication of where your heart is. Uh, An indication that there is something within you that rejoices in evil rather than someone's restoration. Back to Genesis 9. We see that Noah's fall reveals the character of his sons. Something about Noah's sin and Noah's failure that that brings something out about his three sons. Um, It revealed that Ham not just looked upon his situation, but that he also went and um, uncovered his situation to his brothers uh, in in some way dishonoring his father. But it also reveals that Shem and Japheth had a a different character and, and they handled things differently, didn't they? It says that they... In this kind of humorous, descriptive way, they, they put a blanket over their shoulders and they held this blanket and they walked backwards until they were able to kind of feel where Noah was and drop the blanket in such a way that uh, gave protected their integrity. And with great care, uh, they covered up their father's guilt. John MacArthur puts it this way, He says that this is the basic principle that this entire event demonstrates. He says we are called on to assist others in covering their shame. So while it's easy to gossip about a person who is falling into sin or hardship, and it can even make us feel better about ourselves, God wants us, He wants His people to cover each other's shame and not expose it. And then MacArthur points to the same passage we just read in Galatians. I'll point you to two others. Proverbs 10.12 said that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over offenses. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving each other earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So, and I want to make this point here as well, and before I forget, that covering over sin is not the same as sweeping it under the rug. We don't excuse what Noah did and we don't we don't wink at sin and, and just let it go without some sort of activity. It is our responsibility to hold each other accountable. And so covering over sin does not mean pretending like it didn't happen. Many of you have been sinned against and the offender wants nothing more than for you just to move on and forget about it without ever having to deal with it, without ever having to confess it, without ever having to repent of it. Godliness deals with sin in an active, proactive way without excusing it or covering it up as so to forget about or pretend like it didn't have real life consequences. I don't think that's what Scripture is presenting here when Shem and Japheth cover over their father's sin. By the way, this is a one-time event, it appears, in Noah's life. On a what Scripture presents is a fairly stainless record in all the ways that God used Noah, and so he was deserving of their honor to deal with this issue privately. So, what happens when Noah wakes up? That's the third thing. Why did Canaan get the curse? The grandson of Noah, the son, the youngest son of, of uh, Ham, and why did Shem and Japheth? What? Why did they get uh, a different? prophetic utterance from Noah. Verses 25-27, through Noah investigates when he woke up and find out what happened. Uh, By the way, these are the only words of Noah. He's never... We we never hear his voice anywhere. In all the 650 years and all the things that he did, this is his one line. He said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.' And he also said, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant.'" May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And so we see here in Noah's um, only words that he is uttering a prophetic word over his three sons describing who they will become. For Ham's line, Canaan receives the curse. It's interesting that Noah curses not Ham, but he curses Ham's youngest son, which is very odd to us. Why does Canaan get the curse? We don't know, but we can only speculate. Maybe Canaan was with Ham. Scripture doesn't say that, but that's what some commentators um, speculate. Maybe Canaan took some sort of perverse joy in hearing about Noah's downfall. We don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Some commentators speculate that. Maybe what was revealed in Ham was already obvious in his youngest son, Canaan. We don't know any of those things. We don't know why Canaan got the curse other than that it was fitting that Noah prophetically said so. And what we do know is that the land that Moses was leading the Israelites into was filled with perversity and wickedness. I mean, all throughout Exodus... Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, all throughout there, Moses is telling them, listen, the land that you're going to occupy, there's a reason why the inhabitants of that land are getting kicked out. And he lists off all the perverse and wicked and terrible things that they're doing, which is prophesied here by Noah. And God is showing the Israelites that um, Moses is leading them into the promised land and and why the inhabitants are, are worthy to be judged in that way. Over Japheth, Noah prophesies that his territory will be enlarged. um, As a matter of fact, we'll learn in the next chapter called the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 and also in 11 that that Japheth spreads out northward and westward, inhabiting what we know of as uh, Europe and um, Russia. Uh, He expands northward into large territories, Japheth does. But we also learn that in Japheth's uh, the prophecy about him, uh, that his uh, blessing will be directly connected to Shem's dwelling. That is, that Japheth won't be blessed outside of his connection to Shem. Which leads us to Shem's uh, prophecy that Noah gives to him. Notice that Noah doesn't bless Shem, does he? No, it says, Noah blessed the God of Shem. Prophetically speaking, Noah saw something with Shem, and maybe Shem had some reverence or fear of God. Maybe he shared the faith of Noah. Either way, through Shem, his offspring would be blessed as those who know the one true Creator God. We're going to find out through Shem. By the way, Shem is where we get the word uh, Semitic or Semite and how we describe uh, Jews today and the Jewish nation today. They are S- Semites, or we might hear somebody being anti-Semitic. That comes from their connection to Shem. Uh, it's through Shem and God who blesses Shem and who is blessed by Noah here that eventually the Messiah would come. We are able to trace the line from Noah to Jesus through the line of Shem. Shem will have a son down the line who has a son, who has a son whose name is Eber, from where we get the name Hebrews, right? From Eber. Hebrew will give us Abraham, and Abraham will give us Isaac, and Isaac will give us Jacob, and Jacob will give us Judah. And so you'll remember, one of the mega themes of Genesis is that the, the promise of a Redeemer will come from the seed of a woman, And we don't know who it is. So with every new birth of a boy, there is this hope. Is this the Messiah? Is this the one? Even with Lamech, he says, when Noah is born, this one is finally going to give us rest from the curse. And so from uh, Adam and Eve down to the line of Shem, down to the line of Eber, down to the line of Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, all the way into uh, when we get into David, Finally now, the the line of people who are possible to be that redeemer are narrowed. If you read Luke 3, uh, you'll see the genealogy of Jesus, and you'll find the names Shem and Eber and Noah. um, All those names leading to Jesus. And so in this prophecy from Noah, Shem, blessed be the God of Shem. So what happens next for Noah's family? Next week, we get into the table of nations. Seventy nations will come from Noah's three sons. We're going to learn about them and their expansion. Do these curses and blessings come true? Will humanity improve now that Noah's sin is exposed and revealed and his death is in the past? Will people seek God and get better as a society? There's not good news for humanity. But let me close with these two sort of application points for us. Number one, how can we respond to this text today? The first thing I encourage you to do today is don't take any pleasure in uncovering, uncovering someone's shame, specifically with gossip and slander. Ham took some twisted pleasure in revealing Noah's shameful state to his brothers. Was Noah wrong in what he did? Yes. He should not have become intoxicated so that he lost control. I'm sure that Noah wasn't proud of his behavior. It wasn't brazen, public, uh, lewd behavior. This was an unfortunate, shameful event in an otherwise godly man's life. But did Noah deserve to be blasted by his son Ham? No. Ham could have handled the situation completely differently. He could have spoken to Noah. He could have covered Noah. He could have dealt with it privately the next day, dealing with the situation in a righteous way. But Ham exposed his shame, and he enlarged it, and he amplified it. And that's what particularly the sins of gossip and slander do. This has direct implications for us when it comes to godly accountability within this congregation, within our relationships, versus sinful and ungodly behavior like gossip and slander. By the way, gossip and slander are mentioned in some of the lists of sin like i mean i hate that i you know we're taking notes this is kind of an r-rated sermon here i'm trying to clean it up best i can but i mean in some of these lists in galatians 5 for example all these horrible sin lists you find gossip and slander envy and jealousy I mean, what we might think of as private, sort of respectable sins versus some of the others in those lists. Listen, there are no respectable sins. But gossip and slander has a way of destroying people. In contrast to the way Jesus commands us within the congregation, within the church, how we're supposed to handle this. You see the steps in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And that's the end of it. If he doesn't listen, then you can tell another or two others and take them along with you so that the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, Matthew 18, Jesus says that if that person refuses to listen to you and to those few that you take with him, then tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, let them be uh, as an outsider. So there it is. If somebody sins against you or or you become aware of somebody in sin, the the first thing you should do is what? Go directly to that person. And with this uh, spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6, one tells us, a spirit of humility, a spirit of meekness, try to restore that person in a dignified, honorable way. Not one that excuses their sin, but in a, in a way that confronts them and says, listen, brother or sister, I care about you and, and sin leads to death. And, and I see this in your life and, and I want more than anything for you to be repentant and to, to be delivered from this. And I haven't told anybody else about this. This is just between us. And my prayer is that you'll respond in a good way. That's the process. But all too often in the church, we see the destructive results in a congregation being destroyed when people fail. Listen, if you, if church discipline is working correctly, you'll never hear about it. Because it's it's godly men like you and women like you who never make me aware of a sinful issue because you're dealing with it public, uh, you're dealing with it privately in person in an honorable way confronting it one commentator writes this about gossip gossip is clearly defined as one who reveals secrets and who goes about as a talebearer or scandal scandal Um, A gossiper is a person who has privileged information about someone and proceeds to reveal that information to those who have no business knowing it. Gossip is distinguished from sharing information in two ways. Number one, intent. Gossipers often have the goal of building themselves up by making others look bad and exalting themselves as some kind of repository of morality or knowledge or righteousness. And the second indication of Gossip is the type of information shared. It's not just intent, but it's also what they share. Gossipers speak about the faults and failings of others, or they reveal potentially embarrassing or shameful details regarding the lives of others without that person's knowledge or approval. Even if they mean no harm, it's still gossip. In the book of Romans, Paul reveals the sinful nature and lawlessness of all mankind, stating how God poured out His wrath on those who rejected His law because they turned away from God's instructions and guidance. And so God gives them over to their sin nature. And in giving them over to their sin nature, the list of sins includes gossiping and slanderers. God is giving over the world. We love to quote Romans 1, don't we? God gave them over to this and to that, but, but it gives people over to gossip and slander as well. The Bible tells us that a perverse person stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends in Proverbs 16.28. Proverbs 11.12-13 through 13 says, A man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his tongue. A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. Proverbs eighteen seven through 8 the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. A fool's mouth is his undoing and his lips are a snare to his soul. There's so many passages. I could go on and on. Those who guard their tongues keep themselves from calamity. So we must guard our tongues and refrain from the sin- sinful act of gossip. I would encourage you, just real practically speaking, just to take note of anybody who has loose lips. If you hear somebody talking about somebody in a way that exposes their guilt and shame in a dishonorable way, you have two choices in that moment. You can be the kind of person who is a glad receiver of gossip, who has open ears. Tell me more. Tell me more. Let's, let's talk about this. Or you can be the kind of person who says, I I really don't think I need to hear about this. I don't think you need to be telling me. I'd be more than happy to arrange a meeting between you and this person. You should vow to yourself not to be a safe place to hear gossip or slander or to entertain it. Mark the person who is a gossip and guard your ears tightly. If their desire is to uncover someone's shame and they bring no redemption to the situation, or they haven't taken clear steps of confrontation from Matthew 18, if they've made no effort in and of themselves to go and restore somebody in a spirit of gentleness like Galatians 6.1 says, they're not being redemptive. Listen for the language of a gossip. Did you hear about so-and-so? hey, can you help me understand something that happened? I'm trying to process it, and maybe I heard it wrong. You can, Maybe you can help me. This is what happened. And they tell something. Did I misunderstand something? When they, Is that really how that went down? Or maybe saying, this person gives me a creepy feeling. I saw the way they did this or that. Assuming or maybe misleading you to believe something about that person. The way he or she said this or looked did that, it makes me think that they're a something or other. Probably the most common place for gossip and slander is with in the relationship of trusted friends or a spouse. One thing is true, you never gossip with people who don't tolerate gossip. You only gossip with people that you feel like they're going to hear it and they're going to enjoy it kind of as much as I do. Are you a safe place for someone to share what should not be shared? This is a serious issue. You can assassinate someone's character and you can be guilty of slander anytime you lead someone to believe something about another person. That's a serious issue. And we've seen it in this congregation. We've had to practice church discipline in this congregation over the very issue of gossip and slander. So let me encourage you, be really good at protecting someone's shame, not exposing it for perverse and twisted pleasure that somehow makes you look better. At least I didn't fall into that. Did you hear about this guy, what he did? Be really good at protecting someone's shame. Deal with sin personally. Don't sweep it under the rug. Deal with their sin directly and appropriately. And then the second point of application for us that I want you to see is that God covers our guilt and shame. In Genesis 3, after the fall, God sacrificed an animal. He made skins and garments, and he he covered over Adam and Eve's nakedness. Anytime we sin, our sin nature, just being human, um, we, we feel shameful. We feel guilt. The choices we make are often shameful choices. There's not a single one of you who will stand before God guiltless and shameless. In and of yourself. Scripture is clear. We have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all deserve the punishment for sin, by the way. What's the punishment? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this is why we rejoice. This is why we never get over the cross, why we never get over the gospel, why we always come back to singing songs about who Jesus is and what He did for us, is because in Christ Jesus we have a covering for our sin and our guilt and our shame. We have forgiveness of sins. The righteousness of Christ is, covers us and makes it as though legally we had never sinned. God will not hold your sins against you. Isn't that a wonderful truth? He covers our guilt. I thought of this story yesterday at the men's breakfast, and I'll, I'll share it as I close. Years ago, I was on staff at Riverside Community Church in Warrington, and um, I don't know how often you drive down Six Eleven or how often you used to drive down Six Eleven, but there was this ugly building. I mean, it was all rainbow colored and technicolored. It was this huge building, and it had these nude silhouettes. It was an adult club. It had these nude. And I remember one time our daughter, we drove by and she was little. She said, "I want to go work at the Mermaid Store." All right? She she wanted to go work there. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, She didn't know what it was. It just had these nude silhouettes all over it and it looked to a kid appealing. And it was just an eyesore to the community. And the township had dis- uh, not allowed the owner to um, to do more with it. And so because they had messed with him, he, he legally painted it as ugly as he could and just made it an eyesore. And after long after it had closed down, this adult club, uh, I just sensed God leading me to... Lead a group of people to to paint it, and uh, I didn't fully understand why or how or anything. So I, um, we got about ninety five or so volunteers. I think some people here today might have even been a part. I was just telling Chris Mullen before the service; he was there. Um, We went to a local paint store, and they said uh, we said we told him what we wanted, and he said it just so happens that um, we had a bulk order of fifteen huge, I don't know, five-gallon things of paint. Uh, they had a lot of them that were the wrong color, and so they were just going to get rid of me. So we'll just give them to you for free. Uh, we had all the supplies donated to us, and that day about 90 people gathered, and we spent a whole day cleaning up that property and and painting over it. I have a ton of pictures. I'm more than happy to show you. Uh, it was a really special day. Um, it, it was... Memorable, and, uh, and it, it did a service to the community. And the next day in church uh, at our worship service at the, at the theater there in 611, where we used to meet, we showed these pictures, and we, we described it. And Now listen, we, we talked about paint, and, and paint doesn't redeem anybody, but but basically what we said is that, that this was a shameful place that did shameful things in our community, and, and we covered over it as a way of saying that Jesus has a way of covering our sin and shame. And I'll never forget, uh, maybe a month or so later, we got a letter, a handwritten letter in the mail. And um, and this woman said, I- I'm, a, I'm new, I just visited your church, and I happened to visit on the same day that this took place. And, and nobody in my family knows this, and so it's very private, don't tell anybody. But I just was in town, and I happened to visit, and and i want you to know that i used to dance there in my early 20s and and it was a i felt so guilty and i felt so dirty and i felt so shameful and 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 in the years since i had come to faith in christ and yet this was still a place that held great shame for me and what i i drove by and i saw it and then i came into the service and And I saw what you had done and I just want you to know that it demonstrated to me how good God is in covering over our shame and guilt. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? Is that in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can be a a tool, a mouthpiece for God that instead of shamefully exposing someone and humiliating them, you can offer the gospel, which in Christ Jesus, you can have forgiveness of sins. I think that's the beauty of Genesis 9, right? The weird passage about nudity and drunkenness, and yet the beauty of the gospel shines clear in it. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that just like Dave read earlier, that uh, every word of God is, is breathed out by your spirit, and it is profitable to us for rebuking and correcting, teaching and training us so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we thank you even for strange passages like Genesis 9 and Genesis 6 and things that we might normally skip over and yet in your providence, you call us to work through your word and showing us how it contributes to your redemptive message. Father, all of us are guilty and all of us are exposed before You and and yet in Christ Jesus we can be covered and forgiven. And it's that reason that we stand to sing today. We bless You today in Jesus' name. Amen.